Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 15th of July 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. But right now, we're going to zoom over 17 time zones to speak with an amazing Chilean astrophysicist, Dr. Sofia Gallego, who is currently over in California. Hello, Sophia. Hi, Brendan. Thanks for the invitation. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Chilean astrophysicist, Dr. Sofia Gallego. Sofia is a postdoc researcher at Caltech in Pasadena and has her PhD in astrophysics. She has a strong interest in cosmology and extragalactic astronomy from both the theoretical and observational perspectives. She has also studied musical theory, violin, singing and acting, but today's focus will be on the cosmic web, and we're thrilled to have her on the show. Sophia is multilingual and speaks Spanish, English, Italian and some German, but thanks for speaking with us in English, Sophia. Thank you very much for this very nice introduction. Excellent. So, Before we look at your fabulous research and your current work at Caltech, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Sophia, and where your passion for science and astronomy came from? Well, I am originally from Chile. I'm actually from a relatively small city called La Serena, which is very known in astronomy because most of the telescopes are very close to that city. The very nice telescopes are installed in my country. I was always like a very curious child. I was actually curious about everything, not only science, but uh, music, acting, uh, sports, life. Life in general was so interesting to live, right? When I started to think about what to do after school, I had no clue. I was so lost because I liked so many things. So in order to figure out, I went to a website of one university, and then I started to look at careers. And obviously, I start from the A, and I found out architecture, acting, acting, but for some reason, astronomy caught my attention, and I thought it was super interesting. Uh, 
complex, you know, curiosities about the whole thing. So uh, that's actually the reason why I ended up studying astronomy. And I learned out uh, a few years later that actually a very famous astronomer, Shapley, actually kind of had the similar history, why he studied astronomy. Cool. Okay. So could you go back and tell us a little about those school days, those early school days and your early ambitions? And did those ambitions evolve over time or was it always astronomy? I remember when I was a child, I wanted to be a ballerina and a poet. I liked to write stories. I was good at math. I was good at acting. Once I started high school and I took a physics class, I remember the, the professor came and started to explain that like through equations, through logic, you can actually understand the universe. I thought, okay, this is it. You know, that's what I'm looking for, to have this kind of scientific mindset that was driven through curiosity. And I think that's why it drove me finally to get into astronomy. Fantastic. And I'm so pleased to see that you're also keeping up some very strong elements in your musical and artistic and performance career as well. I'm sure it helps you with your science communication and puts that sort of great balance into life. Now, after your school career, you completed that bachelor's degree in astronomy at the Pontifical University of Chile in Santiago. And you stayed on there to complete your master's degree in astrophysics before moving to Europe for your PhD at ETH Zurich, the Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland. And now you're in the USA at Caltech in California doing a postdoc studying the coevolution of galaxies and the cosmic web. Now, Sophia, was extensive travel always part of your game plan? Yeah, it was. As part of my curiosity as a child, I was always curious about exploring the world. My fissure was always drawn to Europe because I thought the cultural and historical density was very high. So I had the opportunity to apply for a PhD in astronomy in many places of Europe and ended up in Zurich. And I was very happy with this decision because I could travel extensively uh, all around uh, Europe and explore the culture, the food, the scientific mindsets of people. I think uh, traveling and exploring and daring to like leave your home place uh, helps you a lot to develop this um, perspective of the world. And it helps a lot in science and in life in general. Fantastic. It looks like you're seeing the planet and the cosmos. Okay, would you like to tell us now about some of the people who have inspired and supported your science journey? And who are you working with right now? Well, the people who have supported me, inspired me, and were not only astronomers. Of course, I mean, the first people that came into mind are my professors during my bachelor's and master's, because they always trust me. I would say, especially as being a woman, you face a lot of these issues considering if you actually are the right fit for the career you're having. I felt I was very different because I was very curious for many things. I have this all artistic, this very other artistic side. 
And I was not sure if I was right for what I was doing, but they always trust me. They say, and you have a mind that's worth, you know, pursuing uh, science because you have a different perspective maybe that other people have. So that's valuable. So my astronomy professors in university, I would say, were a big help. But I would say also my, my music teachers, because during my bachelor time, I actually studied uh, opera singing for a while. I was doing parallel careers. I didn't tell you that before. And my singing professor supported me for my application of my master's degree. So I, I received, I, I, I had a reference letter from my singing professor for applying to my astrophysics master's in Catolica. And thanks to that, I think I got it. <laughs> That's fantastic. We've got a saying here, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done there. Okay. Let's have a look at your PhD thesis, Unveiling the Properties of the Cosmic Web Through Lyman Alpha Emission. Now, in your abstract, you explain that the current cosmological model predicts that most of the matter in the universe is distributed in a cosmic web structure of filaments connecting the galaxies. And that was an eye-opener for me to understand that most of the matter in our universe is not in the stars and planets inside galaxies. Yeah, it blew my mind. Now, your thesis is a huge piece of work. Um, unfortunately, we can't discuss it in detail in the time we've got here, but could you give us the basics of what the cosmic web is and perhaps what Lyman alpha emissions are, please, Sophia? Well, the cosmic web, as you already mentioned a little bit, is basically the large scale structure of the universe, the structure of the whole. And um, if you look at a very, very deep image, for example, the Hubble Deep Field, yep. uh, you see an image full of galaxies, right? Yep. But nothing else, because galaxies are the ones who produce stars. But as you mentioned before, most of the gas it's not in the galaxies, but in this large scale structure. And this structure was formed after the Big Bang. Meanwhile, the universe was uh, expanding and cooling down because gravity is always attractive. The matter starts to collapse, you know, and collapses first in large sheets of matter, then filaments. And then those filaments, the intersections of those filaments are the densest parts of the universe. And you require dense, uh, there's material in order to form galaxies, to form stars. Um, so basically, as I mentioned before, you see the galaxies, but you mostly do not see the whole scale structure because it doesn't form stars. Yep. So this gas, the only way you can um, enhance the illumination is by it receiving radiation from other sources. Uh, so basically, Lyman alpha is the strongest line that we can see in this gas in the cosmic web because uh, it's the recombination line of hydrogen. So the hydrogen gets ionized, the proton and electron get separated. But when they recombine, when they get together again to form the hydrogen atom, they release energy in the form of radiation. And the strongest of that radiation is Lyman alpha. And that's, even if it's the strongest line, is actually very, very, very dim. So the only way to visualize this line in the gas it's by either illuminating it from the, the overall light of the universe 
or if you look closer to uh, galaxies or uh, quasars, which are these like very energetic um, active galactic nuclei where the gas gets heated by the supermassive black hole in the, in the, in the middle. So you take these galaxies or these quasars and they act as, as some kind of flashlight. So they illuminate whatever gas is around and then we can take pictures of it uh, with our very nice telescopes and instruments and trying to detect these very faint structures, you know, like the, the halos, like the matter around the galaxies or the filaments that connect the galaxies. So during my PhD, I was basically trying to find the structures by especially looking in between the galaxies, trying to enhance this very faint emission. I hope that it's clear enough. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, a quick follow-up on that, please, Sophia. I had a look at one of your published papers from last year, and UV background jumped out at me. And most listeners here would have heard about the CMBR, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, but could you tell us about the UV background and how you use it, please? Yes, of course. So I mentioned before that the gas in the cosmic wave is illuminated by light that's coming from everywhere, right? Yep. And the background basically refers to like the overall radiation from everything that is around you. The cosmic microwave background is like this relic radiation from the beginning of the universe, right? But the UV light, yeah, the UV radiation is the, the more high energetic part, not of the beginning of the universe, but actually in a moment when the stars start to form and these stars start to send radiation. When galaxies are forming stars, they emit a light in very different wavelengths, but when they're very star forming, they especially emit in this UV light, which is more energetic. And also the what I mentioned before, this quasars or active galactic nuclei, they are very powerful machines of radiation. So they also emit a lot of this UV light. And what is special about this UV light is actually it's the, the one responsible for energizing and ionizing the intergalactic medium or the cosmic web, as I said before. So those are the ones responsible for what we call a phase transition. So the universe before the galaxies were formed, it was mostly neutral. So the hydrogen was tied together, no, the proton with the electron. But there was a moment in which the first galaxies and the first quasars start to illuminate around, they ionize, they radiate their UV light, they ionize in radiation towards this gas. So they change completely how the universe look like, especially the gas that is outside the galaxy. And we call that recombination. It's a special part in the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also these galaxies, you know, are responsible for maintaining this gas in the cosmic web heated up, maintaining also the gas ionized. So it's very, very important to know how much of that light comes from the galaxies or the quasars, because then we can either use it in the simulations, you know, to simulate as best as possible how the universe looks like, and also to understand how is the interaction between the large-scale structure, this cosmic web, and the galaxies. So that's why I was focusing my work on understanding uh, the UV background. And I, well, I use data from an instrument that is in, in my country. And I, I use this, the same method to find the structures, also to 
disentangle how much of the UV light was coming to the cosmic web. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Okay. So UV astronomy is a huge field, obviously, that we can only briefly mention here, but let's move on. You mentioned instruments. Could you tell us about one of your favorite instruments that provides the data for your analysis in your research? Yeah, exactly. Very, very well connected question because as I was explaining before, I, I use data from instruments in my country during my PhD. And my, I mean, basically the one with, with which I was doing most of my analysis was this instrument called Muse. And it's a very beautiful name, so it's very artistic. Yep. This instrument is very, very special. It's one of the first kind of its kind. It's called an integral, integral field spectrograph. And what is that? You can ask, right? Yep. Imagine that you have a normal CCD camera, like the one on your phones. Yep. And instead of having just like the information about the intensity of the light, you also have the information for each pixel of all the co possible colors, so all the spectra in that particular location of the CCD. So it's basically a data cube of information. It's a spatially resolved spectra or pixels that contain each one of them, the spectral information of the light. And because of that, you can basically have together the information of the light of the galaxies, but also the background. And something that astronomers care a lot about is disentangle the signal with respect to the noise. And knowing the background is very, very important. So with these instruments, you can find both and basically clean better your data and understand better your data in a very large context. Okay, Muse. Keep your eye out for Muse. Okay, what about modeling? Astrophysicists like you are now using powerful and accurate models inside supercomputers that are accurately simulating our observed universe. And could you tell us about your use of models in your research and why is modeling so powerful as a research tool? Modeling? It's very interesting, very important, but at the same time, a double-edged sword. Yep. Yep. Because we are trying to model how the universe looks like. So using the basic ingredients of the universe. And then what we obtain, we can look back and see what fits or doesn't fit the universe, right? Yep. So you have to take everything that comes from a model with a grain of salt, because you will believe that that's actually depicting how the universe looks like. But sometimes you fix a quantity and it's correct. And then you look at another quantity and it's completely offset. And I actually had to use models uh, during my PhD. I use a very large cosmological simulation because I wanted to understand how the gas was distributed around galaxies in order to obtain this value of the UV background light, as I told you before, uh, because we didn't have results of that particular quantity from observations, right? Yep. But in order to obtain that quantity, called the gas, the fraction of gas distributed around galaxies, in order to obtain that quantity, we needed to use also the same thing we're looking for, like the amount of UV light, as I explained before in the models. So it's a kind of a circular argument, you know, in, in the way you're looking for things. You take one thing that you know, you put it on the model, you simulate it and you see what else can it predict. 
and this is a continuous process. It's a continuous feedback loop between uh, observations and theory. And something that I would say also very important for my particular science in, in with respect to Lyman alpha is that Lyman alpha is a very special line in the sense that it's extremely resonant by means that every time you emit a Lyman alpha photon, it immediately recombines, like it gets stuck within the same cloud because it's, it's, it's so attractive for the hydrogen inside. So you basically cannot trace exactly where the light comes from and how the spectral shape of that line looks like in the data is extremely hard, super, super, super hard to model. Yep. That's what we are trying to do right now, to combine uh, in the best way uh, the simulations and the models of how this light propagates in the structures in order to understand better the universe. But there's a lot of work to do. Fantastic. Always more work to do. Always, always. <laughs> always more questions and answers. Okay. Look, it's just fantastic to see how our understanding of extragalactic space is making such inspiring progress in many ways. So this brings us to your current work at Caltech. But before we talk about your current work, could you tell us how you made that move from ETH Zurich to Caltech in California? Studying in Switzerland was a very great privilege. It's a very good country with a very stable economy, with a very high quality of living. I would say maybe one of the best in the world. And ETH Zurich also was an excellent university. And I'm saying privilege in many ways because they also have this special fellowship from which if you study in Switzerland for at least a year, you can apply for something called postdoc mobility, which lets you have an exchange with an external international university and work in a topic of your desire. So it's basically an independent fellowship that I could take to Caltech to work with Professor Charles Tidal. And basically it allows me to interact with this uh, professor and ask ourselves which questions can I try to answer by means of my previous knowledge and the one I'm carrying right here. Fantastic. Okay. So now we move on to your current work and your research schedule. This is a section where we invite our listeners to put their propeller hats on and look at some of the fine details of your work as an astrophysicist. Now, what's the big picture you're currently looking at? And technically, what's the most puzzling, exciting, and challenging work that you're doing? Well, as I study during my PhD, the large-scale structure, something that I briefly mentioned, it's um, how this large-scale structure interacts with the galaxies themselves is a question that nobody knows exactly the answer. It's one of the most unresolved questions we currently have in the field of galaxy evolution. So we know more or less how the universe looks like at a big scale. We more or less understand what is happening inside of the galaxies, but we don't really know exactly how these two things interact, how the gas around and between galaxies fits up, you know, galaxies, because um, Actually, you do require some inflow of gas from the cosmic web into the galaxies in order to sustain the star formation rate that we can see, we can measure in the universe. 
And so we need this gas coming from the outside, but we don't know exactly how does that gas fits into the galaxies. And moreover, as I tell you before, the galaxies also radiate energy outside. So we don't know how this outflow of a, either material or radiation propagates through the intergalactic space. So this is actually one of the focuses that nowadays astronomers are considering one, one of the most important ones. I don't know if you are aware, but um, there is a, something that every 10 years is done in the state, in the United States, which is called like a decadal survey. And they evaluate what are the next generation, uh, what, the, uh, what does the next generation need to do in order to expand our knowledge the best way possible. So for astronomy, one of the most important topics that was debated and, and was declared in this decadal survey was this cosmic ecosystem. So, yes to trying to unveil what drives the formation and growth of galaxies. And basically, I'm very lucky because that's exactly what I'm trying to resolve right now during my postdoctoral work. So I'm right now focusing on a, a very particular special time of the universe, which is called the cosmic noon. It's called like that because it's more or less half the age of the universe. And also the peak of the star formation rate of the galaxies on everything in the universe. And that allows us to study really closely certain structures, which are called protoclusters, which are galaxies that are tied by gravity and they grow to become one of the biggest structures in the universe, these galaxy clusters. And you can see very closely the galaxies and their surrounding gas at the same time. And they have a lot of uh, activity because in this particular time in the universe, they are forming a lot of stars. And so you, you can more clearly evaluate how this interaction between the cosmic web and the galaxies is happening. So I'm very excited, actually. Oh, that's amazing. Um, that's not just the big picture, that's an enormous picture. Okay. Now, Sophia, <laughs> you've just had an encounter with COVID-19. I hope you've fully recovered now, but yeah. how, how has the worldwide pandemic affected your research over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I will, I will talk very personal here because I had to write and defend my PhD thesis during pandemic times, which was particularly very, very stressful for me because I am considering myself a very extroverted person. I really like the, the, the interaction that you have within the community to solve yourself questions. So I really struggle by not having these support systems around me to maintain this discipline, you know, this, this continuous environment by which you can do your work. So I think the pandemic reveals something very interesting for many people that we are all different, right? Yep. So there are more pe who are people who strive more during pandemic times because they, they actually look like to work better, like in, in isolation, more quiet, you know, they are more introverted. And there are other people who work better by like really having these uh, large interactions, uh, continuous looking at in, um, in-person uh, questioning, disentangling of questions, you know, within a, com a community, a collective. Yeah, I would say I, I did struggle a lot, but I also find my way of interacting with this, right? Yep. Okay, thank you, Sophia. Now, now that you've landed at Caltech, what does the rest of 2022 look like for you? It sounds like you've got a lot of challenges. 
you're doing amazing work. You've got interesting colleagues and lots of work to do, plus that change in climate. Do you get some time off to go and explore your new environment in California? Do you have any plans? Wow, that's a very good question. I currently have no specific plans about California, but just enjoying the good weather. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the weather in California, definitely. And I am very much like the sea. I'm, I'm from a beach city. So I'm looking forward to very likely learning how to dive. I'm, I'm looking forward to take an open waters course. Yeah. Wow. So you'll be going from very high altitudes in Chile down to the low altitudes in the water. That'll be fantastic. Okay. Well, now what about outreach? You've got a strong history and an interesting range of outreach activities to your credit. And I'm sure your skills as an artist, as a singer, a musician, an actor have been great assets to you in your outreach. Is it an important part of being a scientist? And will you continue your outreach work? And do you have anything on the horizon there? I have a couple of things on the horizon. Well, first, answering to one of your questions, I maybe outreach is not considered important for many scientists, but I would say it's one of the most important parts. I would say even as like a political statement in the sense that we are so privileged to get paid for asking ourselves questions and understanding the universe. It's, it's a little bit our mission to make that clear to the public, how well deserved we have this, this privilege how much we helping to understand the universe is helping us as humans in general to be better people. So I would say outreach, it's a fundamental part of science and especially astronomy that it's, it's so popular, right? Because you have so many pretty pictures and now pretty simulations that you can show to the audience. So I particularly like a lot doing outreach, especially considering my, my artistic background, as you mentioned before, I have a couple of things uh, happening or starting to happen. I recently went to a school, to a science festival, and I did a, an abstract of a play, of an outreach play about planets. So we are looking forward to perform a theater play in topics of astrophysics to perform in schools. I'm also, it's a dream of mine since many years, I would like to write a book for kids, especially from five-year-old and onwards about the cosmic web, because it's a topic that is not very well known. It's quite a recent research field. And it will be very interesting for kids to learn about that the universe is a giant spider web. So that, that's in the horizon. I already have some friends in science and in arts helping me to, to try to do this. And besides that, a couple of musical projects and paintings that I'm doing the cosmic web a couple of times. Fantastic. Well, I'll look forward to seeing your book. And I'm also looking forward to some of the artwork that will be in that book. Fantastic, Sophia. What a great project to get some information out there to educate the public on the beautiful cosmos that we live in. Now, the mic is all yours. And you've got the opportunity now to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or 
science denialism or career paths or diversity and the equity in our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours, Sophia. Oh, I have so many rants to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, one that particularly interests me, it's about how we communicate science or how, how do we communicate what we actually do? Yep. Uh, because something I have heard so many times is like, why should I trust scientists? They change their mind all the time. Yeah. And the first time that I heard that, I heard that, I it was an epiphany to me to understand exactly that people don't really get it's it, and it's not only a problem from scientists but also from journalism how science is communicated to the general public, right? Because it's like. Scientists discover that eggs give cancer. And then a month later, scientists discover that eggs do not give cancer. And the thing is like, it's not black and white. We are continuously improving our knowledge. So it's okay to change our minds because we don't have anything written in stone. That's the purpose of science, to continuously improve itself. And if we are not able to make that clear to the public, then many things can happen. I mean, it's the dangers, you know? I think scientists were particularly great, I would say this in very general, of have this critical thinking, right? Because that's logic that drives us. And we can apply this logic to everything in life. So if we, we are able to communicate that, like the core of science, which is like to improve ourselves continuously to the public and to tell them you can also think like that. You know, it's part of life. It's like a way of living that you, uh, if you, if you follow though, those principles, you can make your life better because you, you will be able to understand what reality is about, but not just in like a very abstract way, in a very concrete way in your daily life. You know, you will understand why some political decisions are taken, why, why things work like this, why the climate is changing, why it's good to get vaccines or, well, I mean, many, many things, you know, if you, if you, you think logically, you know, your life in general is going to be better because you will become a better human being by understanding what the logic steps to be a good person. That's like my main, main rant about life. And of course, like this increased diversity in overall science and life. And uh, my last rant is like, let's not just increase diversity of the people who participate in science, but also the diversity of how we communicate between different fields. You know, I think I really like the connection between arts and astronomy, of course, because that's the things I do the most. But there's so many things that you can do by interacting between different disciplines. You know, I think interdisciplinarity is the new way to go because everything becomes so specific that it's very hard to see the big picture. And I, I would like uh, within my scientist life, my artistic life, or me as a person in general to increase the diversity by, by increasing the bridges between different fields and science and life. Fantastic. That's a beautiful rant, Sophia. I hope at some stage in the future I can uh, meet you, whether it's in Australia or Europe or somewhere in the Americas. I think we'd have a terrific discussion because uh, from my point of view, uh, that's the difference between scientists and fraudsters and con artists. A scientist will be full of doubt and questions, whereas a fraudster or a con artist is full of certainty and answers. And um, 
I'd rather be on the side of a scientist okay. myself. <laughs> okay, so it's um, stressful sometimes. <laughs> yes. So, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, Sophia? Well, James Webb, right? And the James Webb Space Telescope was launched successfully in Christmas Day last year. I was very nervous and very excited when it worked. And apparently the images that are getting um, scientists which are working with this space telescope um, are just spectacular. It's going to be a, a life-changing event for, for astronomy and science in general. So have a look, you know, watch out for the news coming from the James Webb Telescope. I'm actually part of a, a group that are getting data from that for a particular science case related to the cosmic wave and the interaction with very active galaxies. So keep an eye on that too. Oh yes, it's going to mean so much for your research, especially you'll be one of their best customers, I'm sure, Sophia. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that data is going to change us in more ways than even Hubble did. So it's a very exciting time yes. for astronomers. So. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Sofia Gallego. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you so much, and especially for painting such a clear picture of the cosmic web and extragalactic space and pointing out that you've got a wonderful way of doing that research. Those on social media should follow Dr. Sophia on Twitter. She's at Nefinia. That's at N-E-F-I-N-I-A on Twitter. And her website is terrific. You can find her website at Cosmologa, C-O-S-M-O-L-O-G-A dot com. Thank you so much for your time, Sophia. It's been fabulous. I'm really honoured to be speaking with you. I hope you continue to have a wonderful time at Caltech. Thank you very much, Brendan. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss my science and my life as a scientist with you. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Sophia. Farewell for now. Bye now. Bye. <laughs> And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we'll bring you Ian's Sky Guide. Radio Wave.